Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a learning community for people at a career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We have long-form conversations about self-awareness, relationships, tapping into your inner genius, and building sustainable habits. We are led by our questions. We're curious. We're storytellers. And the more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries. To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to ShellyPrevost.com slash Big Self Society. Let's get started. You all are in for a treat today. We are talking with our good friend, Alex Lavage, who is the CEO and founder of Startup Champs. It's a pre-launch growth agency, and he advises high net worth individuals and Fortune 1000 clients internationally to secure pre-orders and really think about their pre-launch runway before they start companies or even think about acquisitions. He was called the Entrepreneur for the People by Mother Jones Magazine, and he's also been featured in Fast Company as someone who's advancing the entire ecosystem here in Tennessee. Um, His latest project, Reboot Chattanooga, is super cool. So he has surveyed 380 individuals and organizations and has found that there's some common themes and challenges with starting companies here in the Southeast. And he's really focused on bringing a, a knowledge base and inspiration around building personal wealth before you launch a new a new brand or even think about starting this process. Uh, we're excited to talk with him today. He brings a lot of expertise and knowledge. He's really interested in wellness and how we can avoid emotional burnout as we do ambitious work. Welcome to our uh, podcast, Alex. We are so thrilled to have you here. As Chad's mentioned, we have let people know about you beforehand. Um, but we want to kick this off and just for you to tell the listeners about you and your story. Um, really interested in you talking about the the convergence of kind of your economic interest and passions and wellness and just how you got to this place. So just give us a little bit of your background. Sure. Uh, well, I can't show fans, uh, but both of y'all, thank you so much for having me. Um, in a nutshell, um, moved out to the uh, San Francisco Bay Area in the mid-2000s. I was doing the entrepreneurship program at University of Iowa. Uh, great school, great program, but there was also a lot that I wasn't getting. While at the time I was trying to build an online platform that combined my passion for public interest and social justice with also an entrepreneurial drive, you know, trying to create something that's profitable. So at the time, it was an online platform where people could pay their rent online and improve their credit score at the same time. Um, So that took me out to the Bay. And my joke to this day has been, um, I went out there with six figures, net worth, and a dream. I lost both. (laughs) But, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. But I was able to learn a lot from the process. And that was really uh, just over two years that changed my life and changed my worldview. And um, since then, um, since moving back to East Tennessee in 2008, 
have definitely been involved in a lot of entrepreneurial activity as well as trying to bring a lot of what I call the Silicon Valley magic blended in with Southern sensibility mm. towards building a healthier entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem, both in terms of profitability, but also, uh, you know, wellness and quality of life, which I hope we get a chance to chat about this afternoon. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things that you know, uh, there is an increasing story about startups like in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, you know, kind of dis dispersing throughout the rest of the United States because the rent is so high. It is so cost prohibitive prohibitive to, to start a startup there. And uh, I think you're part of a, a growing trend. I think that's true. I think there are other reasons even outside of just cost that mm -hmm. uh, help to explain why you see that exodus of talent out of California towards the rest of the country. Um, another one of the reasons, one of the things I like about Chattanooga in particular, as well as other entrepreneurial communities throughout the Southeast, is just the turnover ratio seems to be less. Um, mm -hmm. In the Bay Area, you know, there's still so many opportunities right and left to get plugged into something. So you're constantly competing on cost, and it is a lot more competitive to keep employees happy and paid well. Whereas here in the Southeast, um, you know, as long as you have a good reputation, you build solid relationships, uh, you treat people well, you can build mm -hmm. a very loyal team in the Southeast, and then that can go a long way towards going through the ups and downs until you have something uh, up and running. Right. Yeah. So Alex, I have known you for years now. I'm not, I'm not even exactly sure the year we met, but it's been a while. And you... 2013. Is that right? 2013? Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Six years ago. Um, and you're, you know, very well aware of my journey in my technology startup, getting into burnout. We have shared many conversations about what's happening in not only the Southeast and Chattanooga's startup ecosystem, but also kind of nationally with how we measure success, how we define it, what are what's at stake when we have such a, a lopsided definition of success for startups. Um, and I'm really interested in you sharing what you're working on right now, talking about Reboot and kind of expanding our conversation and our metrics around startup success and and what you're learning. So I wanted to just ask if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, and uh, I'll try to keep it short and we can expound however you want. Let's definitely expound. Uh, Reboot Chattanooga um, emerged in uh, the fall of 2018. And initially started with a $25,000 seed grant that I uh, was able to put up through retained earnings from Startup Champs, my company, with the idea of surveying hundreds of entrepreneurs and organizations throughout Chattanooga and asking them succinctly what's working, what isn't, and uh, where are the gaps. Out of that, we got about 133 different talking points and um, overlapping themes that came from those conversations which was a lot of information. Mm -hmm. So then we realized, okay, it's not really going to be productive just to put all this in a packet, send it to everybody and say, here you go. It's going to feel sort of being hit uh, with a fire hose. So mm -hmm. we came together as a team 
and said, how do we simplify this message in a way that we can unite what we jokingly call the silos of excellence that are here in Chattanooga (laughs) and bring everybody together around one centralized idea? And that was uh, we need to rebrand entrepreneurship to include people not just launching companies, but anyone who is focused on building personal wealth outside of just the paycheck. Can you give some examples of that to Alex? Absolutely. Okay. Um, because we, we, we realized that from there, not only are there gaps, essentially that infrastructure um, for helping people is essentially non-existent. So some examples of how we've then shifted the campaign to collect personal stories of people building wealth through flipping real estate, hmm. through reselling, through investing, through uh, taking um, the money that they're earning through side hustles and then investing in their marketable skill sets. Or we've got one story of a woman who uh, was doing customer support for $35,000 a year. She found a virtual job with a San Francisco-based company doing exactly the same thing. They said, no problem. You can work virtually. Happy to have you helping. She's making twice as much, Mm -hmm. still living in Chattanooga. Love stories like that. Because what we identified was that if you help people who are entrepreneurially minded build personal wealth first, the entrepreneurial journey becomes much, much easier. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. I want to like back up for a minute because I do want you to, if you could talk about Startup Champs too. You mentioned that and we didn't even, we didn't talk about your company. Oh, Sure. I mean, in a nutshell, it, it's still very uh, the the mission behind Startup Champ. Um, I mean, just just to be <clears throat> raw and real, as our conversations usually are. Yes, they are. Why I'm also so passionate about Big Self and just the conversations you guys are helping to facilitate are just not only real, but they're healing for a lot of people. So I definitely appreciate that. Thanks. But on my side. Um, my, my uncle, who I loved dearly, uh, died due to suicide, and it was because he had received an inheritance, and he launched a company, and he put the cart before the horse. He built the product. He incorporated the entity. He paid the lawyers. He paid the accountants. He had the infrastructure. There was the PR, but it came down to the problem most entrepreneurs face. There were no sales. So... He's not the only one to have gone through that. Through my 15 years of working through startups, as I'm sure you've also seen, Shelley, there is a massive dark side to entrepreneurship. Absolutely. To anxiety, mm-hmm. stress, depression, self-inflicted harm, alcoholism, all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. And that's not because people don't work hard. It's not because they're not smart. It's not because their idea was bad. But it's because they got too focused on getting things done rather than getting the right things done in the right order. Mm-hmm. So I thought about this, and in particular, you know, from a for-profit capacity, what's, what's a service that the Southeast startup community really could benefit from? So I talked to a lot of uh, angel investors, talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, talked to a lot of private equity groups. And the general theme is that we've kind of shifted from sort of this mid-2000s era of let's just throw a bunch of seed capital at a new venture and pray and see what happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> or let's start to shift the dialogue towards saying how can we fund growth, meaning you know, most investments now, the first question they're going to ask is what's your customer acquisition cost and what's your lifetime value per customer? Mm-hmm. 
And are we, and then therefore the investment dollars we're putting in, is that going to help take your business to the next level? There's plenty of that capital to go around. So startup champs, to get to the point, we do pre-launch growth consulting. And what that means is we help our clients, mostly high net worth individuals to Fortune 1000, develop a data-driven strategy towards getting pre-orders, typically before incorporation, or in other cases, before doing a merger and acquisition, which they then want to acquire and take to the next level. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I So here's what I love about you, Alex, because and I know you and I know you well, and I know the heart of what you do is is around wellness. It's whole, you think holistically, like you are really driven to help everybody to pursue whatever a flourishing life looks like for them. But the way that you do that is so tactical. So, which is, you know, I think the world I live in and the psychology world, it can get very ethereal and very abstract. And I think you take these philosophies and these themes and these truths that you have found for yourself about what a holistic kind of flourishing life could could be for for all and you have constructed these really tactical practical ways to help people get there um, and I just I think that that is resonant with people I think there's uh, one of the things Chad and I talk a lot about is how to kind of masculinize <laughs> these topics so that they uh, a lot of the men who I think maybe feel a little bit more squirmish around vulnerability or even just topics of wellness and mindfulness and meditation to, to give them some handles to hold or some way to wrap their head around what flourishing could look like from an economic perspective, I think is really important. Um, and it, you know, I just wanted to say that to you. I appreciate that. I, I feel in a lot of ways, um, I, I embrace the concept of servant leadership, mm-hmm. um, of which at the core of that is just being a good listener. A lot of what came from the reboot campaign, you know, and I, I, I keep I keep sharing this with everyone. Um, it was and continues to be entirely altruism. Mm. Um, there's there's no marketing agenda. I'm not getting paid anything from it. Not expecting anything from it. It's truly just a uh, effort to say we listen to other people. And one of the key things that came from our entrepreneurial community, of which over 87% said they're either neutral or very unhappy with the state of the entrepreneurial ecosystem as it exists today in Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. is that uh, the number one stressor that keeps coming up is lack of capital. And and what we end up doing then as a community um, is we say, oh, well, then let's, let's help you do crowdfunding through, you know, something like uh, some uh, micro lending platform mm-hmm. or let's help you get a loan from a bank or, or let, let us help you talk to how to find investors where you give up equity in your company before it's giving up um, or, excuse me, before it's generating revenue. Mm-hmm. All of those approaches lead to more personal stress. Yes. And, that's, and, and so at a, at, at a basic level, you know, this is everyday people coming together saying, hey, 81% of Americans are working paycheck to paycheck. And this Silicon Valley model of entrepreneurship 
is not working for everyone, and it's definitely not helping to build a stronger middle class. If anything, it's actually impeding that effort mm-hmm. and making it much more complicated. So when it's time to start rethinking everything. Absolutely. The system's broken. Uh, you and I talk a lot about that. So I am still currently an angel investor, but am no, you know, no longer in that um, you know, grind as an entrepreneur. And when I left Torch, left my startup, I, you know, was like really struggling whether happiness is um is completely uh, not a possibility for entrepreneurs. Like I, w- I was like, but I don't know. I think that happiness and being in a startup or health and being in a startup are incompatible. And I really couldn't figure out because the system is so broken and there's such a misalignment of incentives and values between founders, between um, investors. And so the, the way that you're thinking about this gives me hope that maybe there is a way to really restructure the system so that we can align incentives. We can kind of reintroduce concepts of, of health and wellness um, and still make money for investors. And so, um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it goes back to, uh, I mean, the, the older I get, in a lot of ways, the more conservative I become. <laughs> and I have a deep appreciation for what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, yeah. our grandparents' generation after World War II. I look back and I think about my grandfather, who, after the war, he was a uh, flight instructor for the Navy, moved down to Knoxville, less than a few hundred dollars in his pocket. And he built one of the um, top ad agencies in the South from scratch because from the onset, he focused on building wealth first and then scaling second. And I think that's, that's an important message that, you know, now as we are the most overcapitalized country on the planet, and you've got regions like Silicon Valley receive over 50% of all VC money allocated roughly each year, we forget um, you know, our, our ancestors and the past and the struggle and, and the discipline it took to build that wealth in the first place. Mm. And that's all. And, and that leads to then impatience, impulsivity. And then that leads to then throughout the business development process, more pressure, more stress, more anxiety, more egos, more politics, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. this stuff that ultimately is just not sustainable. So, I think just at the crux, change begins within, right? Yes. Oftentimes, we're always thinking about how do we change something in the outside world rather than taking personal responsibility. I like advocating for personal responsibility. And so the more we can build communities through uh, helping to facilitate healthy relationships, one relationship at a time, and to say it is okay to live poor. It is okay mm. to be a minimalist. It is okay mm. to not feel like you have to go into debt to buy things you don't need to impress people who don't care. Uh, it, right. is more lib- it is more liberating to just say, you know, I control my money. My money does not control me. And that gives me one of the most precious resources in the 21st century, which is free time, mm. to then continue to learn, explore, heal, help, 
do the things that matter, that not only advance our lives forward, but also advance humanity as well. Well, that's that's fantastic stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we are all about going within uh, on Big Self but of course, and, and having more free time. Uh, you just took some time and went sort of without. You went uh, all around the world. Um, you know, what did you see that we have in common with some of these other countries? And, and what can we learn from them, perhaps? That's a great question. And I would say in a nutshell that um, when, when, the, when the dot-com revolution happened, I pointed to capture the imagination of everyone around the world. There, I mean, mm-hmm. there have been you know, dozens of countries where governments and private investors came together. They looked at the Silicon Valley model and they said, let's do that. So they did it. Just about... 90 countries across the planet plus invested millions, tens of millions, in some cases even hundreds of billions of dollars into trying to build startup ecosystems. Wow. The majority of those have not shown profitable results, consistent with the amount of money that has gone into it. That's a theme around the world. That's not just here in Chattanooga. Yeah. The analogy that I've used both in conversations as well as in public speaking, is that that Silicon Valley model, which is only possible because it is so overcapitalized that it can get away with anything. Yeah, it can it's afford the losses. Like, mm. They can afford the losses. It's a little bit like a Lamborghini that gets two miles to the gallon. On the surface, it looks super sexy. But then you break it down and you're thinking, wow, that's horrific use of innovation or of, of capital input to innovation output. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world I'm seeing is starting to catch up with that. But the challenge is people are also scratching their heads saying, what's next? And this yeah. is especially true. Um, every country has its challenges with uh, wealth inequality, some a lot more than others. When I was in uh, Mumbai, India, definitely um, a huge amount of concentration of wealth. Same with countries in Southeast Asia. Um and uh, South Africa, for instance, where I was in Johannesburg, all of them are facing the same types of things. And, and the dialogue is shifting from how do we make capital available so that we can basically take people who have little to no personal equity and put them more into debt so they can launch a company, in which most cases they're not even trained to do, or how do we shift the dialogue by broadening the definition of entrepreneurship to say, how can we empower people first? And then that allows them themselves to feel empowered to launch a company, if that's even the path they want to take second. It's a more sustainable model financially, and it definitely makes a lot more sense if we're trying to promote a greater degree of health and wellness throughout the entrepreneurial process. Are people picking up on that? I mean, are they, how, how are they receiving the message? Um, I think that a lot of change takes time. Yeah. So I think uh, for us in Chattanooga, um, you know, it's typical to our uh, reputation and tradition of being a thought leader uh, in the entrepreneurship space. We're ahead of the curve on this one. So that's great. You know, we're, 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 we're on that cusp of what's, you know, soon becoming a, a global conversation piece. That you know that the language we use to describe entrepreneurship has has historically been a part of the problem, 
for why it hasn't been sustainable. Mm. You know, so all change yeah. starts by changing the language first and then putting together a better plan second. And I definitely see that happening. Mm. You know, there's kind of, um, this is in, an interesting thought, you know, there's this kind of narrative that you, you one has to fail uh, in order to, you know, kind of hit rock bottom in order to be transformed. And there's, I guess, a hopeful message that sometimes comes from that. But recently, um, I heard Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, you know, he said in his research that he found that most of the entrepreneurs they studied actually didn't go through some huge failure. Uh, he said, you know, Steve Jobs, yes, he did. He was forced out of his company that he created or Sam Walton did. His stores didn't take off immediately. But, you know, m most didn't have this huge bottoming out period. And I mean, Jim Collins' research is really thorough, so I, I was really flabbergasted by this thought. So I don't know what you make of this, but I find it interesting, especially when we talk about the hero's journey and the cycle where the hero has to be cast out, you know, in the wandering period before they come back whole and healed. Uh, do, do you think that you necessarily have to have bottomed out? That's a great question. Um, I think just because something makes out to be a great story doesn't mean that it's factually accurate, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves in the world we live in, where we're bombarded with roughly, you know, 5,000 media messages a day, um, you know, just to always be discerning and trust but verify. I think your point is spot on. And it's uh, the way I simplify this um, is there are two types of failure. For simplicity's sake, there is smart failure, and there is stupid failure. Uh. So let's define both real fast. Smart failure might be, I'm in a business intelligence unit for a company. I go up to my boss and I say, hey, I've got a new idea for some new features that we could add to our product or service. I'd like you to allocate to me five or $10,000 to do an online random sample survey to see if our current customers would be interested in paying more for said product or service feature. The boss approves that. I go out and do the survey. Turns out I was completely wrong. That should be celebrated. Someone had an idea. It sounded plausible. They did the research. They took the risk. Turned out it was a false positive. That's okay. That's a, that's a part of the innovation process, and we yeah. can always celebrate that. The flip side of that is say there is um, someone who says, hey, I've got this idea for a new product or service. I'm a really smart person. I know I'm right. I don't need anybody to coach me on this. I just need a million dollars to go make it happen. Somehow through charisma, through connections, whatever uh, leverage they end up having, they pull together the million dollars. They launch the company. It falls flat on its face. I don't think that's an example of smart failure. I would say that's an example of stupid failure mm -hmm. because what they ended up doing, in some, not all cases, is they ended up, uh, not listening or not reading, um, what are some better, more conservative, practical approaches towards establishing product market fit first before investing a lot into infrastructure, expenditures, and overhead? So smart failure should be celebrated. Smart failure, I would say, needs to be forgivable. It doesn't mean that we need to say, you know, hey, like, you're out of the club. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we're, like, we're all ultimately in this together. But yeah. the future of entrepreneurship is only sustainable if we start to embrace that it's not about risk-taking. It's about calculated risk-taking. Yeah. 
and, yeah. and we can mitigate that risk as long as we, um, you know, start to emphasize more the importance of that pre-launch process and validating product market fit before we just throw a lot of money at stuff and then hope it all works out. Alex, do you think it's as as simple as ego? Like I'm sitting here and I I I can understand the distinction between the different types of failure. And I'm sitting here thinking, why do we do it then? We continue to perpetuate this kind of stupid failure (laughs) that is it as simple as it's ego driven? Or do you think there's other kind of mechanisms at work that keep us believing that somehow we will transcend this type of failure? It can be, it's complex. I think another, another factor is that, if you look in the dot-com days, I mean, that, I mean, talk about an embarrassment of riches back in the early 2000s. Mm. I mean, there were just, you know, billions, trillions of dollars to be made. And everyone had such a sense of urgency. And the sense was, we have the money, so let's just go ahead and pony up and take the risks. And if we lose it, there'll be another opportunity down the road. So... That, I think that's kind of where that culture came from. Here we are now in 2020. You know, there are 1.6 million apps last time I checked in both the iTunes store and the uh, Google Play store for Android. Mm. <laughs> so we've got plenty of apps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are plenty of websites, plenty of software as a service companies. You know, now, of course, the next uh, wave is around artificial intelligence and machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just it's it's a much more competitive landscape than it than it used to be, and so I think we're going back to just those old-fashioned values of validate the market before you throw money at things because there isn't necessarily a sense of urgency. Now there are some cases where there is, um, and when I was at the uh, Angel Capital Conference in Boston last year, one of the things that they talked about is a lot of the top angel groups that have an internal rate of return of over 20% or more usually are focusing on investing in massively disrupting intellectual property Mm. because it reflects a technology that is so groundbreaking that it could disrupt a multi-billion dollar market. So in some cases that makes sense just to throw a lot of money at something because there really is a sense of urgency and there's a limited time window. Mm-hmm. But for most people in the 99%, they just don't need to be thinking like that. They need to be thinking not about getting things done, but making sure they're getting the right things done in the right order and going about that with a lot of gratitude and humility and surrounding themselves around good people who have their best interests at heart, who aren't necessarily giving them advice, but are giving them the right questions to ask along that journey. Yeah, a lot of like aiming before you fire sort of um, ideas. You know, like one of the things that I'm always, I'm fascinated by and that I think at Big Self we're always going to be exploring is the idea of discernment and decision-making. And I'm just wondering if you have a methodology or how have you learned to make the best decisions in your life? Well, the the simple, most uh, practical way is just to boil it down to one question. Does this bring me joy? Um, I love if that. The answer, <laughs> if, if, if the answer is yes, then um, I'm most likely to go down that path. But I would say, digging a little bit deeper, um, yeah. I really like the Akigai model, which uh, comes out of Japan, yeah. you know, loosely uh, translated as on purpose. 
And anyone can type that into Google Images, I-K-I-G-A-I, and okay. it'll pull up the Venn diagram that shows how four really powerful concepts can overlap to help us then um, think about how we can live more on purpose, which is um, what do we love? What are we naturally good at? What does the world need? And what are people willing to pay for? And where those four circles overlap um, give us a lot of room to um, come up with new ideas and new paths for our lives moving forward. And then within that space, I like to say, um, there's the famous uh, Camus quote, blessed are the hearts that can bend for they are never broken. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't just say, well, because I'm most passionate about this, I therefore have to do that. There are a lot of other factors to take into consideration as well, um, including but not limited to where you at personally in your life in terms of your net worth, your social capital, your geography. You know, will you be supported going through that path or going along that vision and a lot of other factors. And we'll put uh, in our show notes a link to the the Ikigai. Is that how you say that model um, with the I, Venn diagram? Yeah, so so yeah. people can see that because I do think the visual is really powerful for people to to think about how these quadrants circles kind of work in their lives. Um, I wanted to ask you, Alex, to talk for just a minute about your wellness journey. That's something we, we haven't asked you about yet. I know that. Um, you have had some transformations over the last several years and have really um, taken to heart your health, your wellness. Uh, if you could share a little bit about that journey and, and what you learned in that process. Sure. Um, well, I would say starting with when I was uh, knee-deep in startup culture, when I first moved down to Chattanooga, I was with a uh, technology startup that was raising a lot of capital um, and getting a lot of international headlines, a lot of buzz. And that must have been on average 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. It was really stressful. Um, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of work around the clock. And then when I went to go join a nonprofit here in town and, and help you know entrepreneurs, um, not only through the accelerator process, but through one-on-one coaching and um, educational workshops. Um, it was the same routine, and all of that led to weight gain. So I woke up one day, I think I was close to 260 pounds. I was feeling tired. I had brain fog. I was sluggish. I said, something has to change. So I was at the house in North Carolina reflecting, um, being very introspective, saying, what can I do? And just had this idea that I really wanted to go back to one of my favorite places called Optimum Health Institute. Mm-hmm. This was this is a mind, body, spirit detox facility for those that are either looking just to feel refreshed, or in other cases, it's a place um, in Austin, Texas, and there's another location in San Diego where people go with a variety of different what they call health opportunities. Um, whether that be cancer or diabetes or in other cases, uh, depression, it's a place where people go to heal. Mm. So I emailed them and I said, I'd like to come as a volunteer. Do you have any opening? They said, we'll get back to you. Um, within two days, it was just synchronicity. I don't know how the universe works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they yeah. said, we just had an opening. Love for you to come over. So I went there for three months and lost about 70 pounds. 
Wow. But as I tell everyone, it was the things that you couldn't see that I lost, that I was able to let go, that were the most uh, transformative. Um, that's probably one of the most uh, powerful transformational journeys I've ever been on, second to the trip I took in uh, Columbia uh, last year, uh, which was about a two-week trip. Can you say what what you besides the the weight what you were able to let go of a lot of, a lot of that journey um as you're losing weight i believe there's a connection between that and letting go of emotional blockages and emotional trauma mm-hmm. um usually the weight that we hang on to is symbolic of something else that we're holding on to either emotionally or spiritually So it was everything from um, bad experiences, um, you know, misunderstandings, bad relationships. um, And I've definitely, in addition to the weight leaving, which allowed me to feel physically lighter, I definitely felt both emotionally and spiritually lighter as well at the end of that process. Wow. And you say that 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 was second to your... A transformational experience in Colombia. So, what what yeah. happened in Colombia? Colombia was a uh, deep spiritual rebirth for me. Um, I had always I had been reading a lot about uh, microdosing, and um, in particular the power of a root called ayahuasca, which is um, found deep in the rainforest of uh, Peru. Um, They brew it into a hallucinogenic tea that is administered by shaman, which is a um, tradition that's been passed down for hundreds of years and is very, very sacred. So I went down there to have this 10-day experience, of which ayahuasca is just a part of it, but they also um, give you San Pedro cactus. There's a sweat lodge ceremony, tobacco tobacco basil purges. Uh, uh, It's it's a whole ceremony of ritual. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, the, the easiest way I can describe that is it is the culmination of what feels like multiple near-death experiences. Whoa. And then, and then you transition into literally seeing your whole life flash before your eyes. And, and in your memory, it pops up all these cases, some of which you may have blocked or never had even remembered, of traumas or emotional blockages that happened, and you make peace with it. And then it just dissolves back into the earth and you let it go. Mm. And so as I was going through this process, I just, I just felt completely transformed. Um, and as a friend actually told me before going into it, I think this summarizes it very well. It's a little bit like 10 years of psychotherapy in 10 days. Mm. It's a very intense experience, but one that is very worth it and a process that I'm definitely passionate not only about doing again, but also one of my current clients is seeking to bring this experience legally here to the United States on a 250-acre property outside of Escobosa, New Mexico. Um, I'm in. That sort of, and that sort of <laughs> happened after Shelly? You just recruited one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a, well, not a necessarily a good time. Sounds like an intense time, but wow. That's, that's yeah, fascinating. It's, I mean, it's, you know, psychotherapy is still very cerebral, and so this experience, it sounds like it's just transcends that. One of the key take, one of the key takeaways I took from it is that the ego is an illusion mm. and pain is imaginary. Um, wow! Just 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 that 
sentence alone is a lot for people to grasp and to understand unless you've gone through the experience. Um, so I, sometimes I even say that publicly and people can get very defensive or argumentative, in mm-hmm. which case I say, look, you know, everyone has to come to their own truth in their own way. All I know is right now I wish you blessings and uh, healing in the future, whatever, you know, pain you feel like you're going through. So How? It's, it's not meant to come off as preachy, but yeah. it's to come as, you know, this has been my experience. Well, and people uh, that know that you, yeah, people that know you know that it's not preaching. Um, sure. How did you get here? Like, I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, thinking about you've got two very kind of strong um, parts of you. This this intellectual, this uh, almost academic, but economical. Like you're, you've got this strong kind of thinker, and then this very the, the intuitive side that, that values these kind of little more um, esoteric concepts, the things that we can't quantify. So I, how did you get to this place? Uh, that's a little bit like asking what comes first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> I don't quite know how to answer that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I, but I can say that in, in my experience, for, for what it's worth, you know, when it comes to the nature-nurture debate, um, the short answer is I think it's both, but mm-hmm. at least for me, it could vary from individual to individual. I don't know, but at least for me, I feel like I lean more on the nature side. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of I see a lot of myself from my grandfather, yeah. who was very practical and pragmatic and entrepreneurial and numbers focused, and um, he cared about the world. You know, he 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 contributed a lot towards a variety of environmentalist causes and various uh, public charities, but really he just wanted to be comfortable, take care of his family and have enough time each week to play golf. Hmm. Whereas my father, on the other hand, you know, has always lived um, like a pauper his whole life and has invested most of his life towards defending the public interest, both as an FCC commissioner um, to, you know, working side by side with his friend Ralph Nader on a variety of public interest campaigns to most recently as a visiting law professor at the University of Iowa. Well, I, I think both of them, when I look at both of their stories and just their temperaments, and then I look at myself, I can sort of see, at least genetically, mm-hmm. a fusion between them and also other family members um, who, you know, every day I express gratitude for having, being a part of me and in my life. Mm. Well, and I saw that your, I think your dad, did he write a book called How to Talk Back to your TV? That was in the seventies when he was uh, when he was in the FCC. Yeah. Did did he uh, crack that code? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a fun book, and it's interesting. A lot of the predictions and a lot of the observations he made back then are just as applicable uh, today, fifty years later. Oh wow! Um, and so I think it, it's it's mostly just an expose of how the media plays. It continues to play a disproportionate uh, role and influence over um, our self-esteem, our uh, our behavior in terms of our consumption patterns, politics, uh, everything really. Yeah. And so, and so, the premise of the book was, you know, how all of us can continue to take back that personal power to craft our own stories and to shape our own meaning 
rather than to hmm. let the television or the media do it for us. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, you have been the most awesome first guest that we could have on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, this, awesome. this is the hope, right? This is what we want for this podcast is to have these really thoughtful conversations that bring things up for the listeners that they now get to go kind of think about and think through and work on. Um, and one of the things we're doing is we're ending every podcast with the same three questions. And so I want to ask you those now. Okay. Okay. The first one, what does big self mean to you? Big self means to me that uh, no matter what your setbacks have been in life, whether those setbacks were external or internal or Mm -hmm. both, I think when we're honest with ourselves, it's usually both. Yeah. But that no matter what those setbacks have been, there's always hope and there are always people in your life, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, that love you, that care about you, that want to see you thrive because when you thrive, the rest of us thrive as well. We're all more interconnected in ways that we could ever possibly imagine. Mm. Wow. And you guys, and you guys are bridging uh, that gap and bringing that community together of people who share that hope. And regardless of what categories they fall under or, um, or labels, you know, just as humans, we can all come together to say, I believe in you, keep going, and hopefully provide some tactical advice as well regarding how to let go, mm-hmm. how to heal, and, uh, and some inspiration to keep searching for the best path that works for you. Oh, love that. I could love not that. have said it better myself. Well, he gets big self, We may quote he? you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, uh, Alex, uh, what uh, book is, is saving you now? I really like the book Unstoppable by Ben Angel. Um, I'm a big fan of biohacking. I think it's an emerging topic that we're yes. continuing to see more of uh, as years progress in a, in a nutshell. It's a reminder that so much of the self-help movement or motivational speaking circuit is around this idea of if only people had the knowledge, or in other cases, if only you had the self-discipline, or if only you had the right habits, uh, then you can be successful. That's not always the case. In a lot of cases, people's biochemistry, for lack of a better explanation, is just messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and this, and this is a, and this is a book that helps people identify what are, what are the, everything from, um, the foods that they eat to the supplements they can take to the other, um, exercises they can do for mind, body, and spirit to start putting, um, their bodies back in balance. We are all put on this earth to thrive. We are all designed to thrive, but we are living in a modern society where there is so much experimentation going on everywhere that, you know, the plastics we touch to the food we eat, to the beverages we consume, it's all just one huge experiment. Mm-hmm. Wow. And people, and people forget that. Yeah. And it's, and it's messing people's capacity up to think clearly and in some cases to be happy. So until you tackle that first, you know, it's important to remind people, don't feel bad if you're not, um, as successful as you'd like to be, even if you're trying to do everything right. Yeah. That in a lot of cases, if you do the inner work and think about how are you taking care of your body first and how are you making sure 
that you're not just living your best self because you're following the routine, but that it's motivated by how you feel, that you really at the core feel good. That can be life-changing for a lot of people. Mm, Love it. Okay, last question. Who or what is someone that guided you at a critical moment in your life? I would have to think about that. Uh, (laughs) I think... um, in a lot of in a lot of cases, there there have been there have been times in my life where um, I have been on top of the world. There have been times in my life where I've been at rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I suppose I would go back to my grandfather, who you know during these times where I felt I was at rock uh, bottom, either because I had. Uh, you know, invested a lot in a new venture and it didn't work out or just because of some massive setback, just being reminded that at the end of the day, wealth is not how much you have in your pocket. Um, Wealth is a mindset Mm. and abundance is a mindset. And as long as we keep ourselves in in an abundant mentality, it sounds woo-woo, but it's really, really true. Oh, it's true. The the, the The more we're able to... Uh, stop chasing and start attracting mm-hmm. the right relationships, the right opportunities, and um, in often cases, the path forward that we need to take, we don't even have to try to strategize it. It's usually laid out right in front of us if we can only calm our mind enough to follow that path. Uh, so good. So Fantastic. good. Well, this is awesome. I you, I adore you. I think you are just <laughs> such a phenomenal human being and I'm so glad that we've gotten to hang out and know each other better through the Big Self community and just here in Chattanooga Um, and I'm a huge fan and I'm rooting for you always. Big time. Thank you so much Alex. Likewise. Well I just just know I'm grateful for you too. I'm grateful for what Big Self is doing and uh, let's keep building the community and empowering each other. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join in the community at the Big Self Society. You can also find us at big underscore self on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision making, or anything else? Anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.